This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. Today, author Clint Smith... His first nonfiction book was about how Americans deceived themselves about slavery and its legacy through monuments to Confederate leaders, streets named after slaveholders, and an education system that often glossed over the tragedy of chattel slavery. Today, Smith talks about his new collection of poems. They reflect on the legacy of slavery in his family and on the joy and anxiety of being the father of two young children. Also, we talk with actor, comedian, and writer Brett Goldstein. He plays Roy Kent, the foul-mouthed soccer star-turned-assistant coach on the TV series Ted Lasso, which just started its third and final season. Later, Justin Chang reviews the new film Tori and Loki Ta. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Apple Pay. Everyone knows that credit card numbers can be stolen. But you know what's harder to steal? Your face. With Apple Pay, your purchases are authenticated by you thanks to Face ID, making your smile your signature. Just double-click, smile, and tap. With each tap, your card number and your purchases stay secured. Pay the Apple way with your compatible device anywhere contactless payment is accepted. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. Here she is. With some fiction and nonfiction books about black history banned in some schools, it's a particularly good time to talk with my guest, Clint Smith. His nonfiction book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, won the National Book Critics Circle Award for nonfiction and reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It was also on the New York Times Book Review's list of the 10 best books of 2021. For that book, he visited eight places central to the history of slavery in America to better understand the distortions in the way the history of slavery was taught to him and to most children and the ways many Americans deceive themselves about that history. Smith is also an award-winning poet, and I'm happy to say he has a new collection called Above Ground. It deals with the legacy of slavery in a more personal way, through poems addressed to his young children about what their grandparents endured and escaped. The poems are also about fatherhood and the joy and anxiety surrounding it, especially as a black father. Some of those poems are very sobering. Some are really funny. Clint Smith, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's really a treat to have you back on the show. Um, your, your book opens with a prose poem about something I've been thinking about a lot, and I know a lot of other people think about this too, and that is, how do you hold two opposing thoughts in your head at the same time? Gratitude for the things that are right in your life and anger or fear about everything that's wrong in your life or in politics or in the larger world or with the earth itself. What were you trying to reconcile when you wrote this? What was happening in your life? Yeah, well, it's so good to be back with you, Terry. Um, it's it's always a pleasure to be on this program. And with regard to, to this first poem, so much of what I've been thinking about over the last several years is what you've kind of alluded to, the, the simultaneity of the human experience, which is to say, how do we move through our lives holding wonder, joy, awe, alongside fear, uh, despair, a sense of catastrophe. Uh, and, and a lot of what I'm thinking about in this collection is that idea in the context of the larger human experience, but also through the prism of parenthood and how parenthood is both the thing that uh, shows you parts of yourself that you have never experienced before uh, in ways that you are incredibly proud of and also in ways that you're ashamed of, how 
being with your kids is, you know, full of uh, joy and levity and laughter. Uh, and also that parenthood is one of the most exhausting, difficult and fear-inducing experiences in the world. And so I'm thinking about the simultaneity of our lives, both in a, in a macro context, in a geopolitical context, in an ecological context, but also in the specific granular details of our own lives. And you have the ability to put it all in words that really perfect the thought, <laughs> clarify the thought. Um, so would you read for us all at once? I'd be happy to. All at once. The redwoods are on fire in California. A flood submerges a neighborhood that sat quiet on the coast for three centuries. A child takes their first steps and tumbles into a father's arms. Two people in New Orleans fall in love under an oak tree whose branches bend like sorrow. A forest of seeds are planted in new soil. A glacier melts into the ocean and the sea climbs closer to the land. A man comes home from war and holds his son for the first time. A man is killed by a drone that thinks his jug of water is a bomb. Your best friend relapses and isn't picking up the phone. Your son's teacher calls to say he stood up for another boy in class. A country below the equator ends a 20-year civil war. A soldier across the Atlantic fires the shot that begins another. The scientists find a vaccine that will save millions of people's lives. Your mother's cancer has returned and doctors say there is nothing else they can do. There is a funeral procession in the morning and a wedding in the afternoon. The river that gives us water to drink is the same one that might wash us away. Let's talk about your poems. And I want you to read one that's in part about what your grandparents lived through growing up in what you describe as the apartheid South. Um, your grandfather was from Mississippi and your grandmother from Florida. And it also refers to the miracle of your son being born, your first child, because he was hard to conceive and then the pregnancy ended up being very risky. Would you read it for us? By chance. If the doctors said you were impossible and you arrived anyway, does it mean they were wrong or does it mean you defied science? What is the difference between science and a miracle other than discovering new language for something we don't understand? The day we brought you home, I stayed up all night and watched you sleep in your bassinet because I was afraid if I closed my eyes, you'd vanish. Once, a long time ago, your grandmother escaped a war and your great-grandfather fought in one. You come from good fortune. You come from a history that is arbitrary and cloaked in luck. You come from a landmine that was two feet to the left. You come from children who shared their bread when they didn't have to. You come from the parachute that didn't open, then did. Do you tell your children about what it took for them to get here, for you to get here, what your grandparents endured and how they survived? I do, absolutely. I think it's really important for them to know. Uh, and this poem is actually speaking to the experience not only of my own grandparents, but also thinking specifically of my wife's mother, um, who was born in Nigeria um, and escaped Nigeria during the Biafra War, um, and who walked from Nigeria to Cameroon uh, when she was a child, and who ended up being able to move to the United States and, and make a life for herself when, when such a thing was so uncertain. And so, you know, I, I'm thinking about the sort of what it means for my children to be the descendants of people who were enslaved and also the descendants of people who were colonized and what it means to carry both of those lineages in their in their bodies. And I, it's important for us to communicate those realities to them. And obviously you do it in a way that's developmentally appropriate. You do it in a way that uh, allows them to understand that's not going to traumatize them. But it is important for, for our kids to have an understanding both in a, in a sort of micro familial context where they come from, but also to understand the sort of larger social realities of colonialism, of slavery, uh, that shaped why their family looks the way that it does today. Did you always know you wanted to be a father? And when you were younger, and well, when you were older, when you were a young man, and you looked around and you saw the people who were parents, 
your age and older. What did you see? Oh, man. Well, I thought that once you reached your 30s, you were like an elderly person. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't... Um, I was like, well, once you have kids, you're like old. You must be on... I didn't know what Social Security was, but uh, I was like, well, whatever version of the thing that old people get is, is probably what you get when you turn 30. Um, I always thought that I was going to be a dad. I don't think there was ever a point in which that didn't feel like something I was moving toward. Um, and I, uh, ex- with the exception, and I write about this at the beginning of the book, is um, when my wife and I got news that uh, we were that fertility was going to be difficult for us, um, and and it was very uncertain. And the pregnancies themselves, when they even uh, happen, um, were uncertain and incredibly emotionally and physically difficult, especially for my wife. Um, I always imagined myself as being a father, but there were certainly moments where fatherhood felt. Uh, more distant, and and so I, I feel enormous gratitude um, to look at these two little humans that we brought into the world because there was a, a point in which that was um, it was uncertain whether or not that would happen. I want you to read a poem about that. And this is a poem about meeting your wife and deciding to try to conceive pretty soon because of the problems of fertility. Counting descent to. My son was born on the 71st day of spring on the fifth floor of a hospital in a city with a history of burning. He had two grandmothers in the room and four generations in the world. My daughter was born on the 59th day of winter and two doors down from the room her brother was born in 21 months before. Both of my children were induced several weeks before they were due because waiting any longer would have been a risk to both of their lives. I met my wife two years, one month, and seven days before our first child arrived, and three relationships after I assumed no one like her existed. We sat at a table in a city 893 miles away from where we live now, for four times more likely than we planned, and talked about things we had spent half our lives attempting to forget. When the bar closed, we walked two miles to her apartment, where two dates later we'd kissed for the first time. After 17 months and three doctor's appointments, we started trying to have a child because the doctors said we had less than a 1% chance. I'm not sure how they came up with that number, but I remember all the doctors kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. So that was a follow-up poem to the title poem of your first book of poetry, which was also about thinking about your past in terms of numbers. I'll just quote a few lines. You write, my grandfather is a quarter century older than his right to vote and two decades younger than the president who signed the paper that made it so. Why do numbers have so much power where you're counting, you know, the days, the months, the distance between? Yeah, I should say that this poem and the one that preceded it were inspired by a mentor of mine, Alan Michael Parker, who's a professor at Davidson College where I went, and he was my advisor. He has a, a poem in his book that uses a similar conceit that I was I was so drawn to. Um, I think numbers are such an interesting way to document one's past. I, I like the idea of the specificity of these moments. And, and for me, poems, especially these sorts of poems in this collection, are time capsules. They are attempts to archive a moment, a feeling, an idea, uh, an event, so that I might be able to uh, look back on it in the way that one looks back at a a picture in a photo album or, or now a picture in your phone. And those moments, whether they were positive or negative, whether they were imbued with joy or distress, um, are important for me to remember. How did you have to recalibrate your plans for your own writing career after you became a father? Oh man, I you know I used to. I was like, I'm gonna go to the woods for like three months, and I'm gonna write a novel, and I'm gonna, you know, I imagined these sort of long um, retreats away, these extended periods of time in which I would uh, be able to focus on nothing but writing, and uh, and was quickly disabused of that idea because there was a, a baby in our in our apartment, um, and soon to be a toddler, and soon to be two toddlers, and. Um, and then two toddlers at the beginning of, uh, you know, once in a century pandemic. And, and so I was disabused of the idea that I would have these long, extended, lavish periods of time with which to write where, you know, I put my, 
my tea down and uh, and <laughs> sat by the window yeah. and the sun hit me just so and <laughs> Um, it, there was there was a v- very little of that. I think I had a conversation with uh, a mentor, uh, Imani Perry, the incredible writer, Princeton scholar. Um, we got together years ago after my son was born, and she has two children of her own. Uh, and she was saying, "You have to let go of the idea that you you have to have these long periods of time uh, of open time to write. You got to write every chance you get, whether you have ten minutes, whether you have." Uh, five minutes, whether you can only write a paragraph. And it's simple advice, but it was really transformative for me. And I I began to think of writing less as something that I had to have the perfect conditions for and more of something that I had to be proactive in cultivating. And so, you know, over the last several years, I I write everywhere. You know, both of these books were written uh, in my iPhone, in my on my laptop, on pieces of napkin, at the coffee shop, during nap time, during episodes of Peppa Pig, at the barber shop. Um, I recognize that, you know, if I want to be a present parent, then it is important for me to sort of uh, write where I can um, so that when I'm with my family, I don't have to be imagining or wishing that I was doing something else. We're listening to Terry's interview with writer and poet Clint Smith. His new collection of poems, Above Ground, is about fatherhood and the joy and anxiety surrounding it. He's also the author of the 2021 nonfiction book, How the Word is Past, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break, and Justin Chang will review a new film he describes as a harrowing story about two African migrant children living in a bustling Belgian city. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX's Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to Terry's conversation with writer and poet Clint Smith. His new collection of poems, Above Ground, is about fatherhood and the joy and anxiety surrounding it. You've made it clear how fortunate you feel to have your two children and to have, you know, to have children at all because you were given only a 1% chance, you and your wife, of being able to conceive. But in the spirit of your first poem that you read of like holding two thoughts in your head at the same time, you love your kids, you love being with them, you're so glad when they go to sleep. And so I want you to read a a poem about that called Ode to Those First 15 Minutes After the Kids Are Finally Asleep. Ode to Those First 15 Minutes After the Kids Are Finally Asleep. Praise the couch that welcomes you back into its embrace as it does every night around this time. Praise the loose cereal that crunches beneath your weight, the whole grain golden dust that now shimmers on the backside of your pants. Praise the cushion, the one in the middle that sinks like a lifeboat leaking air, and the ottoman covered in crayon stains that you now have accepted as aesthetic. Praise your knees, and the evening respite they receive from a day of choo-choo training along the carpet with two eager passengers in tow. Praise the silence, oh the silence, how it washes over you like a warm bedsheet. Praise the walls for the way they stand there and don't ask for anything. Praise the seduction of slumber that tiptoes across your eyelids, the way it tempts you to curl up right there and drift away even though it's only 7.30 p.m. Praise the phone you scroll through without even realizing that you're scrolling. Praise the video you scroll past of the man teaching his dog how to dance merengue. Praise the way it makes you laugh the way someone laughs when they are so tired they don't even know if they will stand up again. Praise the toys scattered across the floor. And the way you wonder if it might be okay to just leave them there for now. Since you know tomorrow, they will end up there again. I think so many people will 
relate to that? What stage are you now with your kids? My uh, son is about to turn six. My daughter just turned four. Um, and so, you know, I think we all relate to to that time um, after either a work day and then picking the kids up, doing the afternoon activities and the homework and the hanging out and the soccer practice and the dance class or or a weekend um, where you're you're with your kids, you know, all day and it's great. But then, you know, you put them down and those just like the poem says, those first 15 minutes when you're like listening at the beginning, when you're listening to hear if anybody's going to tiptoe out of their room uh, or when they're younger, if somebody's going to start crying or start screaming and the sort of just overwhelming respite your body feels when you can like sink into that couch or into the bed or onto the floor. Um, I think that is a universal experience um, because it's uh it's a lot to raise little humans and to try to make them thoughtful and kind and and to make sure they don't you know put things in their mouth or their nose or or both at the same time. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the constant vigilance is uh, can be exhausting in ways you don't fully realize until the day is done. There's one more poem I'd like you to read, and this is about your physical health and the physical health of your family, and it's also really basically a meditation on life itself. Um, so the poem is called For the Doctor's Record. And it's kind of as, as if you were giving um, a medical history at a checkup. For the doctor's records. My father has chronic kidney disease. He has had two transplants thanks to two people who were generous in ways I'm worried I am not. My mother has a nerve in her neck that doesn't let her sleep through the night. My mother's mother died of blood clots. My father's father died with Alzheimer's casting a cloud over everything inside him. My wife had complications while she was pregnant with both my son and daughter. Both arrived early and I held my breath until each of them released their first. My wife's mother escaped a war and lived to tell us how the memory is still whispering inside her. I enjoy fried foods. I eat too much salt. I worry about having more than one drink. I've seen people in my family become consumed by things they didn't know could kill them. My knees hurt some days. I feel my bones ache when it rains like the old folks used to say. I don't know what is in my body and what is in my head. I want to take more pain medicine, but I'm afraid of what I can't control. My chest gets tight when I lie to people I love. My mother's sister had breast cancer. My mother's brother let alcohol turn him into silence. I remain astonished by how cicadas live for 17 years underground and then die within weeks of coming up to meet the world. What were you doing when you wrote that poem? What made you think of life in a way uh, as interpreted through medical records? This is inspired by a poem by uh, the incredible poet Nicole Seeley. Um, you know, I, I think our family, like many families, have a very specific and, and often uh, checkered medical history. And I was thinking about this in part because, you know, we began our conversation by thinking about what did I ever question or uh, did I ever wrestle with whether or not we should bring children into the world. Part of that is thinking about um, what your kids are going to carry. What are the sort of intergenerational uh, realities, you know, the intergenerational traumas, the intergenerational uh, genetic dispositions, the intergenerational health conditions um, that you will pass on to your children. And a big part of it is you, you don't know. Um, and so I was thinking about and wrestling with that uncertainty. I was thinking about um, the, the, the sense of not knowing what parts of my lineage, what parts of my wife and I's collective lineage our children will carry and more specifically, how it will impact them. Um, and and that's a frightening, unsettling thing um, because you don't ever want to feel responsible um, for passing something on to your children that causes them physical, emotional, or psychological distress. Um, but you also just don't know. There's a kind of follow-up poem to the poem you just read. And it's called, for the doctor's record, follow-up, as if it's a, a follow-up appointment and you're still reporting 
medical things. And what I'd like you to do is just read the last part of it, starting with last night. Last night, another boy who could have once been me or who might one day be my son was killed by police, but this time no cameras showed up. I haven't cried in a long time. There have been 11,315 sunsets since I was born, and I haven't stopped to watch any of them. Is that right, that you've never really stopped to watch a sunset? At the time of writing that poem, that was true, yeah. Um, And I think that part of what poems do in their own strange way is make me more present. Um, and sort of holds me accountable. So, so the very act of writing down that I've I've never seen, you know, that I've been on this earth when I wrote that poem, you know, over eleven thousand days, and have never, really, never just sort of sat to watch the sunset like for a sustained period of time, uninterrupted, focusing just on the way that the 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 earth is tilting so that the sun moves across the horizon was a moment of revelation for me to ensure that uh, that reality did not continue to be the case. And so it wasn't long after that I wrote that poem um, that I did sit down and watch the sunset uh, because part of what poetry does is allows you to, and maybe the better word is forces you and pushes you to see the parts of yourself that you might not otherwise have Uh, encountered or might not have otherwise paid attention to. And I think that my having never watched a sunset felt reflective of a larger phenomenon, a larger idea of of being unable to sit still. And I've been trying to do better with stillness, um, trying to do better with being present. And and so that's, that's what the poem was calling me to do. Clint Smith, it's been great having you on the show again and hearing you read your poems and talk about your life. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Clint Smith's new collection of poems is Above Ground. He spoke with Terry Gross. Our film critic Justin Chang recommends Tori and Loki Ta, the latest from acclaimed filmmakers Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne. The movie, which won a prize at last year's Cannes Film Festival, tells the story of two African refugee children struggling to survive in present-day Belgium. It's now in theaters. Here's Justin's review. For nearly three decades, the Belgian brothers Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne have been making gripping moral thrillers about characters caught up in desperate circumstances. My favorite is The Sun, their 2002 drama about a father confronting his child's recently freed killer, though I also love their 2005 Cannes Film Festival winner, L'Enfant, in which a young man sells his own newborn child on the black market. They're such consistent filmmakers that despite their enormous acclaim and influence, in recent years, they've become somewhat underappreciated. At this point, To hear that they've made another brilliantly observed, emotionally shattering piece of social realism hardly counts as news. And yet they've done exactly that with Tori and Lokita, which strikes me as their best new movie in years. Shot with a restless handheld camera, and starring a pair of terrific first-time actors, it tells a lean, harrowing story about two African migrant children living in a bustling Belgian city. Tori, a 12-year-old boy played by Pablo Schills, is from Cameroon. Lokita, a 17-year-old girl played by Jolie Mbundu, is from Benin. Tori, an orphan, was granted political asylum upon his arrival. He and Lokita are trying to pass themselves off as brother and sister so that she can also claim refugee status. As is their way, the Dardens drop us immediately into the action, without bothering to fill in their characters' backgrounds. We do find out that Tori and Lokita met at some point during their travels, under circumstances that have now made them inseparable. While they have a place to stay at a local children's shelter, they spend their days and nights continually on the move, making money however they can. In one scene, they earn some cash singing karaoke 
at an Italian restaurant. That's the sweetest moment in the movie, and by far the most pleasant of their jobs. The owner of the restaurant is a crime boss who uses Tori and Lokita as his drug couriers, and who sexually abuses Lokita in private. Lokita tries to send what little money she earns to her mother and siblings back home, but she's also being hounded by the people who smuggled her into Belgium and who try to extort cash from her and Tori. Things go from bad to worse when Lokita is sent to work at the boss's marijuana factory, a job that will separate her from Tori for at least three months. But Tori is smart and resourceful, as just about every child in a Darden movie has to be to survive. As Tori races to try and rescue Lokita, the film paints a grimly convincing portrait of two minors being mistreated and exploited at every turn, whether by drug dealers or by the cops we see harassing them on the street. The Dardens are committed realists, but they're also terrific action filmmakers, and this movie is full of agonizing suspense and quick, brutal violence. The story is swift and relentless. It runs barely 90 minutes and never slows down. But at every moment, the filmmakers' compassion for their characters bleeds through, along with their rage at the injustices that we're seeing. Unlike some of the Dardenne's other protagonists, Tori and Lokita don't face a moral dilemma or a crisis of conscience. Their only imperative is to stay together and stay alive, and our empathy for them is total. There is one moment in the movie that haunts me. It happens in a flash, when Tori and Lokita are running for their lives, and Lokita desperately flags down a passing car. The driver stops for a moment, but then she quickly drives on, leaving the children on their own. I think the Dardens mean for us to think about that driver, and also about how easy it is to turn away from the suffering of others. It's not the first time they've made a movie with this kind of staying power. Or, I suspect, the last. Justin Chang is the film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed Tori and Lokita. Coming up, we'll hear from actor Brett Goldstein, who plays Roy Kent, the foul-mouthed soccer star-turned-assistant coach on the TV series Ted Lasso. It's just started its third and final season. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. The series Ted Lasso has just started its third and final season on Apple TV+. The show's about an American football coach who moves to England to manage a struggling English Premier League football team, even though he has no experience coaching soccer. It was a huge hit with critics and audiences alike when it premiered during the pandemic and went on to win two Emmys for Best Comedy Series for its first two seasons. Our next guest, Brett Goldstein, is a writer for the series and won two consecutive Emmys for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series for his role on Ted Lasso. He spoke to Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. The show may be called Ted Lasso, but for a lot of viewers, it's all about Roy Kent. When we meet him at the beginning of the series, he's a gruff, foul-mouthed British footballer 
past the heights of his career. As the show goes on, he remains gruff and foul-mouthed, but he tearfully retires, coaches his niece's girls' football team, becomes a sports pundit on TV, and then settles into the role of assistant coach for his old team, AFC Richmond. Here he is with the team of nine-year-old girls after a loss. You played a hell of a game, but you lost. I want you to remember this feeling. Burn this moment into your brains. Good. Is it time for trophies, Uncle Roy? Yeah, yeah. Emily's mum bought everyone consolation trophies. Must be nice to just burn cash. Best dressed. It's stupid, you're all wearing the same thing. You? Right, you know what? Just get amongst it. Enjoy your trophies for winning nothing. Coach Kent. Look, when I was young, you got shouted at for losing. It's the same. But then tough love never bothered me. You know, as long as I knew the coach gave it. Oi! It has been an honour coaching all of you. I do hope you'll come back and play next year. But only if you beat it! <laughs> Our guest, Brett Goldstein, plays Roy Kent. He won the Emmy twice for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series. He's also a writer for the show. Plus, he co-created the TV series Shrinking, which stars Jason Siegel, Harrison Ford, and Jessica Williams. That show just aired its season one finale and was renewed for a second season. Goldstein also entered the Marvel Universe, playing Hercules, who looks to be a new Marvel villain. He also hosts the podcast Films to be Buried With, where he finds out about the lives of comedians, actors, and filmmakers by asking them about the films that mean most to them. Ted Lasso just started its third and final season. Brett Goldstein, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Emery. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start by asking you to tell a story that you've told a lot, but it's a great story. How did you get the role of Roy Kent? Okay, the the story goes like this, and it is true. The story is uh, I was a writer on Ted Lasso. I'd done a pilot with Bill Lawrence, one of the co-creators, a few years before, and we'd stayed in touch, and he knew I was a writer, and he called me and said, do you want to come write on this TV show about football? We need a British guy. And I said, sounds interesting. And I met with Jason Sudeikis on FaceTime and then we fell in love. And then I was like, yes, I really, really want to do this. And I went over and was writing Ted Lasso uh, with the team. And as we were writing it, I started to think, oh, I, uh, I think I'm Roy Kent. But I also knew no one in the room was thinking of me uh, for obvious reasons. And I didn't want to make anyone uncomfortable and I knew it was going to be awful if I just suddenly said in the writer's room what about me for Roy Kent I knew everyone would just be like uh, everyone would just look at their hands and be like yeah good idea Um, let's think about it Uh, so I waited until we'd finished in the writer's room and I made a self-tape of five scenes and uh, and I emailed it as I flew back to London I sent an email and I said look I know this is really awkward, so if this is terrible and embarrassing, you can pretend you never got this email and I will never ask about it. But I think I could be Roy. And so I've made you this video, and if you think it's good, then great. And I sent the email, flew back to London, and as I landed, I got an email saying, this is brilliant. And I thought, oh, they can't be bothered to keep looking and uh and I got the part what was it that you related to or understood about Roy that made you think I have to play this guy well it was so much of it I mean there was parts of it that were very personal to me and there were parts that I understood from having sort of known these people is that uh, one thing was I grew up my dad is like a football hooligan and uh, very very obsessed with football and I always grew up around footballers and around football and um, you know we had friends of the family who were professional footballers and I saw this culture and and as I was a kid they were getting older and coming to the end of their careers and I I sort of saw this thing of it's very tragic it's very uh, difficult this transition from they're they're not I can't think of many 
careers that are like this. I'm sure there are, but football is very specific where you you start very, very young. You you live this quite insane life uh, that's completely this thing that makes you special, that makes you this kind of amazing thing. And then in your 30s, it starts to come to an end. And not only is that difficult, but you don't really have any other life skills. You've been living in this sort of weird bubble. And for it to, you don't want it to end. You had no plan, but your body doesn't agree. You know what I mean? But then again, I think that that's also a universal feeling, a feeling of ageing and you don't want to age, but your body, your knees don't work as well as they used to. And there's something sort of tragic about that. And then the other stuff in Roy is, you know, he's a, he's a guy who's been raised in this kind of, if you want to call it toxic masculine environment where he's been culturally taught to be tough and to be a wall. And, you know, and it's extreme with him, partly because of the position he played he was a captain and he's a sort of box-to-box midfielder his job is to not let people pass him he has to be a wall he has to scare people and um, the fact that he has all this emotion in him but he has repressed it for all these years uh, and he finds it very very difficult to be vulnerable and I always had this thing that the reason he talks like that is because he's he's pushed all his it's literally like a cork is in his throat like a cork is holding all all his emotions in because if he let it out he'd be such a wreck you know well I was going to ask about that because you know as we can hear Roy's voice is different from yours you know the character's voice was lower more gravelly gruffer was that the voice there from the beginning like do and do you have to do anything to go into Roy voice I should also mention that, like, Roy also kind of walks a certain way, holding himself together. Yes, yes. Well, well, all of that, all of that is, do you know what? It's quite, it's funny because when you do, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for this, by the way, but when you do all the press for the show, you end up talking about it in a way that you didn't talk about it when you were making it. Because when you're making it, as in, look, when we write it, we analyse every single angle every you know it's like a kind of mad dissection of every person's feeling every movement everything but when it came to acting it it's all instinctual it's only in hindsight when I talk about it I go oh I think that's why this was this you know except for the stance which was definitely he walks with his shoulders back really far back and really tall uh, a, because he's ready to headbutt anyone at any <laughs> any moment. But that it's also how people, I think, used to be raised. It's like head up, shoulders back. That shows you're a man and that shows you're intimidating and that's confidence, you know what I mean? And he's been, I think he's literally been told that since a child. Head up, shoulders back. So it's so drilled into him, that's his stance. And with the voice, the voice was like instinctual, but when I analyze it I go yes because he's holding everything in you know in some ways this show is a little bit of a Trojan horse like on the surface you know it's a show about sports but it also takes on feelings of loss you know masculinity relationships between men fathers and sons but that's kind of what sports is like our joke in our family is like sports are really just soap operas or stories for men completely there's a thing we've talked about uh, of, I think sport is there so men can say I love you without saying I love you. And that, you know, look, on, on the one hand, there's me and my dad talk almost exclusively about football, but it is our way of communicating. You know, I, I'll call him, what's, what's happening with uh, Tottenham? He tells me all this stuff. Sometimes he'll call me, oh, I didn't tell you about this transfer, this whatever, this my minute detail but I think it is us saying I love you I love you (laughs) how are you I love you you know what I mean and there's the thing of we talked about this in the writers room of um sport being that and look this is a gross generalization so please forgive the generalization of it but it is something that certainly I know a lot of people relate to which is men traditionally aren't great about 
looking each other in the eye and talking about their feelings. And what sport does, in the same way that a car ride does, is that you're both facing forward. You don't have to look at each other. You're looking at drama happening in front of you and you can talk about things because you don't have to look at each other and if anything gets emotional it can kind of be blamed on what's happening on the pitch (laughs) you know what I mean it's like if we don't look at each other and we can face this way then we can talk and I'm always fascinated by particularly when I see really really repressed (laughs) difficult men but I see them at a game where they're singing and they're screaming and they're shouting and they're crying and it's like this whole catharsis for them, these, these feelings that they can't process in the week. Like sometimes I think football is like a, <laughs> a therapeutic good for the world, for people who can't, who can't ever bring themselves to go to therapy, you know what I mean? I think that's true. I like um, coupling it with the car ride too. It's like a way for things that don't come out regularly as a way for them to come out, difficult things. I'd much rather, we used to meet, uh, <laughs> my friends at, at uni uh, bought a van and they call it therapy van and they'd like get, get their friends and they'd sit in the front and the friends would sit in the back and they'd go, come on, tell us what's going on in your life and just drive around because <laughs> as long as no one has to look at each other, it's fine. <laughs> you said that you used to be miserable and had a dark brain <laughs> and that you've worked hard to change that, you know, I, Take a number. No, just kidding. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what do you think a younger you would think about the fact that you're credited for making this like hopeful show? Because for a lot of people, Ted Lasso was like this antidote to dark, you know, the, the pandemic, this dark time. It was like this lovely, hopeful thing. I mean, look, I, I really have been on a, a journey. It's, it is amazing. You, you asking me that question is making me go, bloody hell. Like, I, I am proof that people can change I suppose and that you can change your worldview and your I had a very very dark brain I think I was very miserable and used to write when I I found like sort of old I was always writing and I found kind of old stories when I was moving house like I found a box of like old stuff from university and early 20s like short stories and things I'd written and they're so dark like horrible (laughs) horrible like what like what kind of darkness uh, they never had a happy ending they were always a pretty bleak view of humanity and just horrible just reading them like Jesus man you are not a happy boy but it I think a number of things changed that you know, one is therapy for sure. Therapy was hugely helpful. The other was sort of life experience and, and realising, you know, I have an incredible life. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And if you're not appreciating that, then you're insane. You know, it's like, there's that. Um, but also it's, it's mostly, I suppose, mostly therapy. And then realising, I've talked about this on my podcast and it's not a joke because I really think this was like a profound moment as a writer as a creative which is I saw a film that was critically acclaimed five stars everywhere you know this year's masterpiece and it is so profoundly bleak and depressing and I hate this film and I went to see it on a Saturday night with my friend and we sat there and it was like an hour into this and it's based on a true story but Horrible, 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 horrible. And then about an hour in, something even more horrible happens. And and it's just shot really slowly. Like you're just sort of watching this act of sexual violence happen. And it happens for like three minutes. The camera just held on it. And I turned to my friend as a joke and I went, that's entertainment. <laughs> and I thought, what are we doing? Like, why have we paid to see this thing? And it really sort of stuck with me as like, I think this film is bad. I think this is bad art because there's no glimmer of light in it. There's no humour in it. There's no... This isn't how life is. And I know this is a true story. These horrible events did happen, yes. But 
if you've experienced horrible events, if you've read books written by survivors of horrible events, there are always, always jokes in them. There's a moment where they laughed. There's a moment where they held each other. There's a moment of connection, of love, of light in everything. And if you make something that doesn't have any of that, I think it's bad art. I think you've not watched life. I want to ask you, even though everyone else has asked you this, it's the report that this is the last season of Ted Lasso, the show's creators have always imagined the story to be a three-act arc. Um, I read you cried during the filming of these last episodes, knowing that it's the end. I sure I did, in fact. Um, (laughs) Did you? Did it feel that way at the you know filming these last episodes? Yeah, it's yeah. I think it will. To be fair, it's emotional every season when we when we finished because. I, I think people must be sick of hearing it, but like, I really, really love making Ted Lasso. It's it's such a wonderful group of people, and I do think that some of the magic of it is that we all we all care about it as much as you care about it. You know what I mean? Like we we really really care about it, and we're so grateful to be there. And it and it's it's fun. It's not like it's like a grind, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, it's really good people working on something that we think is really good and we really care about. And so it's always sad when it comes to the end of shooting because you think, oh, I like hanging out with these people every day. <laughs> Brett Goldstein, congratulations on your success and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You've been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Brett Goldstein spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. The third and final season of Ted Lasso just started streaming on Apple TV+, Plus, where you can also find the first season of Goldstein's series, Shrinking. Fresh Air Weekend is produced this week by Thea Challoner. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winners Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried and true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Colored Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscoloredchoice.com NPR. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections.